Welcome to the On a Tangent podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined here with my co-host, Beth. Hello. Uh, Our podcast is just two friends who've been friends for a really long time, talking about shit that nobody else will talk to us about. (laughs) (laughs) And in our first episode, we're finally going to speak about Ari Oster's 2019 film, Midsummer, which... um, I thought was fantastic, and I know she did too, and nobody who knows us wants to talk to us about it, so I'm sorry, not sorry. Here we go. (laughs) And stop listening if you haven't seen it. Nothing's going to make sense to you. There's no point going over the plot at this point, so just turn it off. No spoiler alerts. It's a year old. (laughs) You're right. This is your fault. So I, from the very start, though, I do want to make a comment that the music in this film is um, done by a great artist who goes by the moniker Haxon Cloak uh, on a regular basis. He was billed as his regular name in the film, but all of his music is top-notch and is just as creepy as the Midsummer soundtrack is. Um, Like, I guess Ari Oster was listening to him while doing things for this film and had to have him on it. So um, definitely, if you haven't listened to Haxon Cloak yet, you need to listen to Haxon Cloak. I'm furious you didn't tell me that earlier because I was looking for that this morning because it's absolutely fantastic for work or crafty stuff or any other creepy cult shit you want to do. Dude, it's it. No, it's so good. All of his stuff is so good. And I, you know, cause Austin follows him on Instagram. And so he's showing me, Oh, this guy's working on a film. I wonder what film he's working on. And then I start reading about midsummer. This was last year. And I see that, this is what this guy is working on. And I just about shit myself. It was so exciting. So, um, and I think that that music lays a really good groundwork for the film because Midsummer takes place 90% in the daylight, which is unlike a lot of scary movies, but like something in his music, because it's just like discordant, like long droning string instrumentation. Like, that adds the scariness that dark would add. Because I don't think anything scary, honestly scary, actually happens in the dark. It all happens in bright daylight. I'm going to bicker with you about that later because at least Connie's death is off screen, so I don't know. But at the same time, I, I just want to argue immediately. I don't think this is a horror movie. Oh, this wait, is no, a love no. story. No, actually, I agree with you. This is a fairy tale. I accept that. I'll accept it. But it's got themes of familial love. It's not horror. People just die. No. Right. And and this is a bigger conversation that will take so many episodes. But Ari Oster has... <laughs> well, Ari Oster, as of right now, I think has four films under his belt. Two shorts and then two feature-length films. And all of them have to do with super complicated, fucked up parental family dynamics. So... I know, and he said he draws from feelings of his life. And so, like, did you know he wrote Midsummer after a breakup? You know, I read that and it makes sense. Because a lot of what this movie does that I loved is it doesn't do a whole lot of direct telling. If we're going to exclude right. the visual narrative. It's mostly observation. Like, we don't see any of Danny's conflict with her family. It's just 
the way that she phrases things, you're aware that this has happened again and again. And and it's also phrased in such a way, though, that even if you specifically have never been in a familial situation like that, you can probably pinpoint a situation in your life where you felt that way about another human being, which I think Ari Aster does so well. Like, he understands how to make you feel a specific feeling. Because, like, the beginning of that film, how many times have you been trying to talk to somebody in, like, a fevered way and they're just not responding to you? And the anxiety that elicits in your own self because they're just not responding. And, like, I immediately felt that, like, oh, my God, what's going on? Why isn't her sister answering her? Oh, my God, what's going on? And, I mean, I I got that feeling. I totally did. And he partly because of the musicians he works with and then partly because apparently he's just a genius at getting people to have honest real emotions on screen that make me feel weird yeah i'd never seen florence Pugh. i don't know if she's been in anything else because of my poor research skills <laughs> she but... was in the new little woman which i haven't seen yet but she was <sighs> in the new little Ew. woman unsubscribe from that <laughs> but i re- <laughs> no don't i'm not watching that but no i um one thing i noticed on the rewatch that I missed the first time around because Mm -hmm. I didn't know to look for it is that when she was panic calling her family initially during the open, Mm -hmm. uh, they're alive. Her parents are still breathing. So she's calling. It's not that she was too late even. It's just that she didn't know to escalate. And I'll be frank. It's not fair, but I'm going to blame Christian talking down to her and telling her her anxiety has no basis in reality. Um, She didn't, call the police she didn't do a wellness check and granted it's obvious that part of that is because they've had several of these crises before that came to nothing Mm -hmm. but at least part of it is christian demeaning her and talking her down to think that she's hysterical right but i also love though how ari oster does let the the viewer know that like no this is a fucked up situation and he shows you exactly what the the sister wrote her and i wrote it down Mm -hmm. she writes everything is black mom and dad are coming to goodbye and like I will say, though, Christian wasn't making his comments with that information. However, I will continue to explain how uh, Christian's a terrible person. Um, (laughs) And um, while I regret uh, that he died inside the belly of a bear, um, he was a really bad boyfriend. Okay, he's not just a bad boyfriend. He's a bad friend and a bad person. But having said that, oh yeah, I think he does know the email because he says she's not filling him into anything he doesn't know. He says immediately, how's the sister situation? Meaning he's aware there's no way she left out the content of the I guess literal that's email. True. You know, I guess that's true. And and I can see that being the thing. And, and I do like how that's a like a... I like how we come into this situation in the last quarter of the situation. Yes. You know, um... And also, a little bit of a rewind. Before the film even starts, that painting, the five-part painting, mm-hmm. that tells the entire story of this whole movie. Can I ask a question based on the painting? Please. Okay, so there's one panel I super don't understand. Okay. It's in the middle. They have the bear, which I know what the bear is, clearly. But there's also a blue bowl. I know that other animals were sacrificed according to the script, do you think I'm missing symbolism or do you think that that refers to a literal bowl that we didn't see? So, um, I'm pulling it up to look at it at the same time. So I, I'm, I'm sure, I wonder if, 
and maybe the internet can answer us in the future once people actually listen to it. I wonder if maybe perhaps that bowl might be, because it's blue, it might be some symbolism for Sweden only because the Swedish flag is blue and yellow, which Ari Aster also uses those colors predominantly in this film to symbolize things that are death and things that are um, rebirth or also death. Because this whole, and Siv talks about it after the, what's it called, like the Astupa? Mm. She talks about how they see their life as cyclical. And so um, he uses blue and yellow to kind of symbolize that. Like, that's where, since we're talking about the death of the parents, right? So mm. we'll fast forward. Obviously, Christian's a dick. He tells her not to worry about it. Hey, guess what? She should have been <laughs> fucking worried about it. Because it turns out that as soon as she texts her sister back saying, like, you're not allowed to tell me what the fuck to do. You need to figure this out. Um... An unknown caller calls her, well, duh. And then we see what the actual picture in her parents' house is. Uh, her parents, the, the cars have been turned on in a closed garage with hoses leading into the house. So obviously her sister was not giving a veiled fake threat. Her sister was literally telling her, hey, I'm leaving it. I'm taking them with me. And if you look, there is something interesting about her parents' room when they're showing them. It's that, firstly, there is a floral crown next to their bed. And secondly, they're wearing pale blue pajamas. Remember that color. And if it, when it pans on the sister, the sister is wearing a yellow shirt and has taped a yellow hose to her face. I completely missed the crown, to be honest. I, I read oh, it no. after the fact, I but I didn't went see back it. I went back and rewound it to see, and then people are speculating. Oh. People are speculating. Oh well, that means that the cultists killed her parents. Like I they did not. I mean, we can live in a world where it means that if you, if if you want, it doesn't change the story. If it did, but all okay, but it kind of does because my issue, and I read that too because I, I looked into it a little bit to see. I was looking at some of the details I missed. Right. My issue with that is, and I and I do think that the symbolism is intentional. Obviously, it's something on a rewatch that you'll catch that is referring to things we don't know yet. But my issue with the idea that uh, I can't say his name right, Pella, Pele, Pele. Yeah, so he didn't set this up because the thing is, it doesn't make sense in the narrative for that to have occurred because we know there's not a big enough sample size of outsiders coming in to get the shop to do that over and over and over. And they have no way of knowing that she's not just going to freak out and storm off like Connie. I abs- it, it wouldn't make sense. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. That's why, like, if that makes people like the movie more for them to imagine that, like, I'll let them have their imaginary idea that that's what happened. But we all know they're wrong. <laughs> but I, I think it's a cool thought. I just, right. I don't see it being true. Well, I think it's an unnecessary, it's an unnecessary additional theory to attach to it because, well, like people are like trying to tie this movie and hereditary together, which I also love and would love to talk about by saying like, oh, this cult warships Paymon. They don't. Ariaster no, said they, they don't. don't. It's Ymir. They're, it's, isn't that Norse mythology, isn't that the um, father of Odin? And, you know, and his brothers and sisters, I guess. It's not just him. But don't they kill him to make the physical structures of the earth, like, mm-hmm. rivers or his blood and whatever else? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, like, you have all this cool stuff that you could pull from. Like, just call a floral crown a floral crown and 
you know, continue with your life. You know, right. it's not, I'm not, but this leads to like, I think I, I, I want to watch, I want to know what Florence, I think her last name is pronounced Pew. Pew. What she draws on when she is crying in this film, because I I have felt that cry. I have heard that cry. And like, I, you can't get it out of your head. The cry that's so guttural that like, she's like coughing. It's coming from inside her body. And the word repetition. I've only seen those two things. When it literally was, some someone was dead. Yeah. They just found out. No, I I don't know. There has to be, and I say this because, think of Hereditary and Tony Collette. He has mm. to be, there has to be some way he gives specific direction to these actresses for their reactions like that. That is so shockingly accurate, you know what I mean? That they can pull from something so, so easily because... It's just like, it's one of those things where like, I'm getting goosebumps talking about how she was crying. See, I think, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a really important moment that immediately gets you invested in her character. Because I know we kind of should be anyway because of the situation. But I think a lot of times, especially in horror movies, I don't give a shit. Like, the backstory is nothing. Right. I'm waiting for the carnage. It is horrible as that sounds out loud. But this one, because that was such a relatable, horrible human moment... It draws you in and you immediately feel for her and are on her side. But I think there's no way that you could direct someone to do that. I think his participation in that is that he chooses incredible actresses and identifies them. Absolutely. No, I I absolutely agree. Um, And this is also one of those scenes, going back to talking about the musician Hex and Cloak, who did the original soundtrack. If you listen to when the police show up at her parents' house... It's not sirens. It's him making that sound. Oh. Yeah. Which is why (laughs) which is why it doesn't quite sound right, but also like it still sounds bad. Yeah. Um, Well that was a beautiful shot too. When her the way that shot where her sister is against that window and you have the flashing lights and mm -hmm. the whole scene is so saturated with blue. I'll be frank, I didn't get the symbolism. I thought the blue was just to make it dreary and grim and a dark picture i didn't really capture the death and rebirth imagery Mm -hmm. but it was still a beautiful shot oh yeah no i I just gorgeous so (laughs) so that scene directly cuts like an immediate black cut to like a super bright room so we start this movie in in darkness everything is super dark it's hard to see and it cuts to like immediate light and we see Danny like laying down somewhere. And did you pay attention to the painting above her head? Is that the one that's the bear? It is. It is. I wrote it down. It's called. Oh man, I only wrote it in Swedish. It's something like <laughs> it's something like "You Are a Bear" by a Swedish artist. But a lot of the art in her room is folkloric art um, dealing with large monsters, human sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Um, Ari Oster likes to use like imagery and symbolism and like he like Alfred Hitchcock or like M. Night Shyamalan or whatever like they'll like hide little things in every single scene and every time you watch it there's a new thing to look at like uh, like Jordan Peele like every time I watch Us I find something new to be like look at that I love that movie I I love that soundtrack 
I know. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but then we roll into where Danny finds out that Christian has been wanting to go to Sweden with his friends for their senior trip. And I would be furious <laughs> if my significant other of four years, two weeks, and however many months or whatever they were together um, just didn't tell me they were going to Sweden. It's not even just not telling her, because, okay, that's not fair, but all right. It's the, I didn't tell you, it came up in front of you, I allowed that to happen, and then I pretended that you were fucking crazy when you were upset. Like, he completely gaslights her in that scene. Oh, no, like, once again, theme of the movie, Christian's not a good person. He's a bad friend, he's a bad boyfriend, and he's not, he's just not a good person. Um, He's a Walmart Chris Pratt, too. Ugh, Chris Pratt's a Walmart Chris Pratt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man now people aren't gonna listen anymore um value. so so you know we fast forward a little bit um i want to bring up a, a interesting juxtaposition and i saw this brought up on a few different websites and i also noticed it i thought it was really interesting that the conversation that danny and christian have after coming back from the party she's standing by the door and we only see christian in reflection Oh, I didn't get that. And then the very next scene where Christian's telling his friends, hey, guys, sorry, I had to invite Danny because I'm too much of a coward to tell her how I feel so she can get on with her life and heal from the grief of losing her family. Um, And then she walks in. All of the guys are sitting on the couch, and we only see Danny in the reflection in the mirror above the couch. That's so sad. It just, it really captures how much of an outsider she is. Absolutely. And I honestly, this is the moment I decided I was fine with Josh dying because they all know the horrible situation she's in. They all know not only what she's been through, but what he's actively putting her through because he doesn't have to want to be with her, but then break up with her. Even though it's bad timing, even though it sounds horrible, it's better than smiling at her face. So I hate Josh. I hate everyone except Pele because he actively tries to engage her in the conversation. He reassures her. He makes an, I know he makes her cry, but he makes an effort. But he doesn't make her cry being a jerk. No, being sweet. And that's the thing is like, I find it very interesting. And I think it's funny that like, um, we know Pele is only inviting the guys to Sweden so they will die. Period. Which I'm fine with. Absolutely. Um, the the least bad one is Josh, and he's still, our best case scenario is he's just uh, too much of a coward to at least tell his friend to stop being a dick. Um, okay, I love Josh except for his interactions with Danny. I think Josh doesn't do anything wrong here except he does break the rules of the group after they've been kind enough to share with him. His ambition gets him killed. Right. Absolutely. Oh, I'm looking at my notes while we're talking. My notes for the restaurant scene only say, die Mark, die Pele. <laughs> That's the restaurant. Because he's like, oh, you can impregnate all these girls. I know. Shut up. But like, okay, but in Pele's defense, was he lying? No. <laughs> but it was mean. But but this also, so the scene with Pele telling Danny how he understands how she feels. He's a an orphan too. And at this point, we don't hear how his parents die, but we do later. Um, and he's mm. trying to explain to her how, like, I get it and I understand it. And I'm sorry I haven't been a more, you know, I haven't said more to you, yada, 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 which makes Danny cry. And one of the best cut scenes I've seen in a movie 
happens right here where she gets up to walk to the bathroom and as she goes into the bathroom it's the apartment and as the bathroom door closes the scene turns into the airplane and I was just like I literally the first time I saw it my jaw was just totally dropped and I was like that was pretty fucking slick <laughs> that was fantastic I have that down too one thing though so did you notice at the party when Pelly mentions that they're all going to Sweden he looks directly at the camera which then shifts is the camera at that point in my opinion it's supposed to represent like what Danny's saying we're looking through Danny's eyes for the moment so when Pelly mentions Sweden does he mention it knowing that she doesn't go or hoping to entice her I would almost Given what we know about Pele and his motives, given the, the additional information we receive, I would almost dare to say that he purposely brought it up in that fashion to make her want to go. Or at least to warn her. Right. So he, Kristen's not just gone. But I, and I hear, the funniest thing is like, I think that of the, the men in the group, I think Pele's the one that acts probably with the most sincere motive. <laughs> One hundred percent. Which is you know, bizarre. Okay. Speaking of the men in the group, one thing that really bothered me, and it's really, I'm not criticizing the film because it's absolutely left out because it's not necessary. But as a person, it bothers me that we know Danny has good supportive friends. She's talking to one about Christian being over her when she says she loves him, and he does that long ass pause before he goes like, oh, "Okay, me too." So. We know she has good girlfriends. She's not someone who can't make connections with people. Right. So why, after this tragedy, is she constantly with stupid Christian and his horrible friends at a party instead of with people who care about her? Um, well, if we're going to psychoanalyze her and Christian's relationship for a second, <laughs> here, perhaps my It thought. bothered me. So she has just gone through like a super traumatic event. And we see in the beginning that she's taking some Ativan, so she may have her own individual troubles additionally. Um, and she obviously really loves Christian. Like, truly, honestly, wholeheartedly, he is her person. She is not his yeah. person. And so after the death of her family, like, she's probably clinging to the only family she has left, which is her super fucking shitty boyfriend. Yeah, I guess they were a lot. We were together for so long. Right. And but that's what's shocking is like until she says how long they were together in that scene where he doesn't know how long they've been together. Mm-hmm. I assumed they had been going out for a few months. And I was like, "Well, yeah, that's a little weird if you guys aren't like, you know, deep in it, but they've been together for almost 5 years." Like That's marriage he, at that point. He deserve he he needs to give her a little more. She deserves to have more from him in terms of commitment and emotional connection, which we're reminded repeatedly through Christian's words and actions that he could give a shit about whether she comes or goes, frankly, as long as it doesn't affect him. Well, and I I absolutely agree with that. I also think maybe it's because we see it over and over, and I understand Christian was gaslighting her, and this happens in a bad relationship when you need someone. But over and over, like, she'll call him out on some bullshit. Like, when he said he apologized, but he absolutely didn't. Right. She'll call him out. He'll get fussy, and then she's immediately begging him, like, I'm so sorry. That was my fault. No, no, everything's fine. Come sit with me. It's sad. But she, like, shoves herself down completely makes herself go to that party, apologizes for his poor behavior. 
like all I can think is maybe even though like we saw the call and we know she has some friends, maybe she just is that isolated because she put everything into Christian. Oh, it was a poor investment. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. I, this is someone I, I think Danny is very much somebody who, um, is, is clinging for, which ties to the end. Now she's clinging for a family. She's looking for a group and a community and Christians, all she has left. And she's so in the thick of her own grief that she can't see that he's just terrible. Like, just yeah. horrifically terrible and bad. And, like, well, like, you know, let's, so they, they get to Sweden and they go to, like, this, like, park thing where they meet up with the other Swedish people who happen to just bring all their foreign friends randomly for no reason. And, <laughs> See, and I, I thought it was sweet. I didn't feel alarmed. And... Well, like, uh, in the beginning, not knowing that this is going to end poorly for everybody, <laughs> that <laughs> I, I could see how that could be nice. But this is where we meet Connie and Simon, two English backpackers that come with, um, uh, Pele calls him his brother, but, you know, they're, like, Ingmar. not actually brothers. But, yeah, Ingmar. And Wait, why are, they, why are they not brothers? Well, I don't think they're, like, blood brothers, but the way the cult is run, like, all the children, it's a, it's a commune, so everybody are mm. brother and sister, but they're probably all not really brother and sister. Um, so, like, we find out that Simon and Connie are engaged, and they've been going out for four months, which leads, <laughs> which leads Christian and Danny to have a conversation in front of everybody where Christian has no idea how long they've been together, and it's, like, four and a half years. Now... I understand that's an important moment, but you've blown past the most heroic act in the entire movie. Which one? Ingmar is so petty. <laughs> he brought Simon and Connie because he and Connie had kind of a flirtation and then she stopped seeing him and started dating Simon. So Ingmar is the real hero because he used his cold sacrificial practice to like get some petty ass revenge and I respect it. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Also. And I did. I forgot about that because I was so appalled at Christian <laughs> that I completely was blind to Ingmar being like just King Petty over there. <laughs> yeah, but remember, there's, okay, so I was laughing. He was like, it was a little drew. thing. It wasn't a big deal. <laughs> I wrote, I drew but like, obviously it was. <laughs> well, that's the thing because he's like, we used to date. And she's like, we never dated. It was one date. And then he like made this little face. And then remember her terrible fiancé who earned his death right here has to make that mean-ass joke to this nice man who invited you to his town and is feeding you and housing you. He says, well, yeah, we're actually going to have Ingmar officiate at our wedding. And then I forgot who, but I think Danny goes, really? And he's like, no. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, fuck you, die. So Ingmar is my secret hero through the whole movie. You know, Ingmar's also a hero because he brings the mushrooms. That's not a heroic... Okay, can we talk about this? I understand that I'm old and I can feel it watching this movie because all over all of my notes, all it says is, when are they drinking water? They're Never. out here in the sun doing mushrooms with no water and no sober babysitter. I don't get it. I don't I, approve. Who's their trip advisor? I need to know who the responsible party is. It's probably, I guess, but like, also, where is everyone else's cars? But whose cars? 
in the field. So there's all these people there. Not everyone came there because remember, a bunch Ma- of people were returning. Maybe they walked. <laughs> From where? He leaves his car in the rut, which is clearly the only road leading into the town. Right. Where are their cars? Maybe maybe they all Ubered. <laughs> I guess. The Uber to the Arga. I was, like, mystified by it. But who, like, who just does mushrooms? I didn't see one person have water or a snack or, like... I know, and they're just, like, super tripping in the sun, and... Dan- die out there. Danny's hand is turning into the grass, and although that was a trypophobic problem for dude, me, dude. But here, I preface this by saying Mark is a repugnant human being, and I hate him, and I'm glad he's he died. But he did he did say the funniest thing in that scene where he's like, "Oh no, I can't do new people." Yeah, I can't do new. I, I don't want new I, people. I right felt now. that at the core, and I was like, "Me too, dude." Um, I wish you weren't so horrible, dude. <laughs> You're pretty fucking terrible. But so, so Ingmar brings the mushrooms. They do the mushrooms. Danny's pretty apprehensive to do it, which I think she should be because she understands her limitations. And you don't want to trip if you're going through some trauma shit. And she still does it to make Christian happy because his friends want to do it. Which that was so sad. Here's my thing. He clearly hates her to his core. Why does he do that weird virtue signaling? I'm a good boyfriend. You don't have to do anything. But I'm going to be passive aggressively mad at you for not doing it. Because he always backs her into this corner where she not only does what he wants, but apologizes for ever having hesitated in the first place. Absolutely. Has to talk him into doing what he wants. And it's infuriating. No, because he's terrible. So, like... She obviously starts tripping and hallucinating her sister and her parents. And apparently, mm. I didn't see this, but, like, you can, like, see her sister in the tree. I don't know. I didn't see it, and I also didn't rewind it because I didn't want to. Um, her sister's supposed to be where? Like, an image of her sister's, like, somehow in the trees. I don't know if it's, like, like uh, abstract where it looks like a woman in a yellow shirt. I, I, I didn't, say, I didn't look, I, didn't I did that. a really superficial Google and I couldn't see it. So, um, but I also, so, you know, she trips balls, passes out, wakes up. They all start walking to the Harga, the commune. And um, we start seeing. Oh, no. Why? I'll send this to you. Oh, you I'm should. I'm going to send it to you. We're going to get a live react It's right not now. her sister. It's a weird CGI face oh yeah bullshit internet well you know i mean it's still cool and i didn't see it but i don't know that it's the internet sister yeah i want to say that (laughs) (laughs) sam that's me (laughs) yeah it says the visage of her sister's suicide can be seen in the trees behind her on the thing i'm looking at oh and there absolutely is a hidden face Actually, yes. If you look, if we, if you were to rewind the scene to where her sister was up against that thing, that is the face her sister is making. Really? Yes. Um, so when they get to the Harga, they start meeting people. This is where we start seeing runic symbology, which um, I didn't finish my homework on the runic symbology. You can actually look all the runes up. They're all real runes. They all mean real things. Um, but then we start meeting the leaders of the cult as well. And this is where you're going to start noticing, and I don't know if you picked it up, the lack of subtitling, which I noticed, and it pissed me off. 
<laughs> um, where when the members of the cult are speaking to each other, we don't get subtitles. So we don't get to know any of the things they're saying in Swedish about anything at any time, which is interesting. Um, and we meet, I think he was goes by Father Odd. But um, he welcomes everybody to the Harga. He's one of, he's like the male leader of the cult. And he shakes all the guys' hands, Mark and Christian and Josh. He hugs Pele. He says, welcome to the Harga. And then if you notice, he looks Danny straight in the eye. He gives her a big hug and he says, welcome home. I did notice that. And I thought it was so cute. I presumed that she must have looked distressed or something, which after having seen it, maybe I'm missing <laughs> something there. Did you catch what he said about his outfit, though? Uh, no, I didn't. So he, they said they like his, she says that she likes his outfit. And he says, oh, my frock, it's very girly. And then he says, um, oh, here, he said, it's in respect of nature's hermaphroditic nature. Huh. Yeah, he mentions Ymir and he says that his, he specifically, he calls it a frock, which I presumed meant garment. But then he mentions the hermaphroditic nature, and he specifically says that his outfit is girly. I did not notice that. That is, yeah, it's it's odd, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the, here's the other thing during that conversation that bothered me. Mm. He mentioned that it was. I don't think that he mentioned, but either he or Siv do, where they say that it's been ninety years. Um, since the last great feast, and it'll be 90 years before the next. Mm -hmm. So we know that Pelly's parents burned alive. We know that. Right. We presume it happened in one of these rituals. So my problem is, if this only happens every 90 years, there's other festivals we don't know about then. Well, I would say A, yes, and B. So the theory, and I mean, I, this is kind of what I figured by the end, was I would assume that they probably do a, fer a fertility ritual in the vein of this every year, which may include at least the uh, burning of their own members of the Harga, but not the sacrifice of outsiders. And that mm -hmm. every 90 years, they do the nine-person sacrifice, the disemboweled bear, and, and the feast that Danny presides over at the end. Um. But, yeah, I was, like, doing the math. I'm like, how old's Pele? <laughs> He's aged so well, I'm, but he can't be more than 72. Can I join the Harga? <laughs> um, this is the first time we see the big yellow temple, which, think about it, when you first see it, blue flowers on the ground, giant yellow temple. And we start thinking about the usage of the colors blue and yellow. They walk through a bright yellow starburst to get to the Harga. A lot of the embroidery, especially on some of the older members, is blue. And in fact, when we get to the Estupa, the two old members that actually do the jumping are wearing the exact same color blue as Danny's parents, which is a muted, stormy blue color. So I never caught that. He's and, I love you. <laughs> and if you look, they're both wearing runes. I know we're... We hella jumped forward, but not by a whole lot. But still, yeah. But so they're also wearing runes. So backtrack a little bit. There's a little teaser given that we hear it's close to Danny's birthday. And while Pele's showing them around, he pulls Danny aside by herself and hands her a beautiful portrait of herself that has two runes on it. And I want people to pay attention to 
every rune that Danny comes into contact with for the rest of the film are these two runes, and they're actually shown as reversals, um, which means that they usually um, are like a hardship. In fact, the two runes, I, for, I can't pronounce and won't pronounce the names because I don't want to do that. Um, in the reversals, they essentially mean like hardship journey. I kind of love that. Yeah. And they're the same runes that are on the white dress she wears at the end during the Maypole and all the subsequent May Queen scenes are the exact same mm-hmm. runes on her, which I thought was really interesting. So whatever whatever was planned for Danny was planned for Danny once we knew she was going. I I really liked all of the runes and everything. Um I, I read the same thing about Danny that it was a journey. I didn't catch that it was kind of reverse and that it meant it would be so difficult, but it mm-hmm. of course makes perfect sense. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, remember when Danny, when she's tripping in the fields before they get to the actual town, mm-hmm. when she goes into that shack that I presume is a bathroom because someone's got to be a grown up here. Oh, are you talking about the creepy uh, room behind her? Yeah. So that mirror distortion. Mm hmm. I did not take that as anything but a shitty mirror slash being on drugs. Mm-hmm. Online, a lot of people are giving it much heavier significance. Mm-hmm. How did you take that? Well, I actually, I chalked, I, I will say I initially chalked that up to um, a filmmaker decision. Ari Oster likes to use um, hidden figures in the background of scenes to throw off viewers that see it. And as, like, an additional, like, what the fuck is this on second viewing? Like, if you watch Hereditary, there are multiple scenes where Annie's mother, who's been dead for the entire movie, no spoiler alerts, um, is in the background. Is just standing there, like, in Charlie's room, in Annie's studio. The scene near the end where Peter wakes up after Annie's been possessed, she's up in the fucking corner of the room and most people don't see that. Not to mention during the climax of Hereditary, there are dozens of nude cultists in and around the property and house that are just hidden in the background. Ari Oster loves doing this. He also likes hiding things on the back of doors, um, which there's symbols written on the back of, I think, that door. And in retrospect, that person she sees, and I might just be thinking too far into it, I think it looks like Maya. Really? I, I think it does, but we that's such a quick flash. It could be Maya. It could be the girl that is flirting with Mark. It could be, it could be nobody. I thought it was the uh, product of cousinly love. <laughs> I'm trying to say it as delicately as I can. It had a kind of Quasimodo vibe going on. That, no, you know what, that's, I could, I but also, I could see that being a thing, too. We're going to have to rewind it, man. Um, We're going to have to. Now I'm curious. But, like, so, as Pele is, like, showing them around, uh, Connie, they're walking by, like, a clothesline, and Connie's like, can we look at this painting? And it's like a five-part series, also, but shown backwards. The story's backwards. It plays from right to left instead of left to right, which I thought was interesting. Like, the way you would read, like, kanji or Hebrew, it reads backwards. 
but it's it's a um, I'm using air quotes nobody can see it because this is audio a love story <laughs> about a woman who uh, feeds her menstrual blood and pubic hair to a man to make him fall in love with her um, spoiler alert no spoiler alerts that's the whole conversation bro yeah um, I thought that was really interesting and I like immediately when I saw it, I was like which one of them is going to eat pubes <laughs> Like immediately, I was like, "Oh, I hope it's Mark." I know. I just want bad things for Mark. Like, okay, here's my problem. Stephen mentioned something. Uh, Stephen's my husband. He mentioned something that I didn't even think about because I hate Christian so much. I gave no thought to what happened to him. Right. He mentions Christian is not someone who cheated on her. Christian was raped. Oh no, he was drugged and under a spell. It is for sure. I would. I. I absolutely agree. I would call that absolutely a rape scene. Like that is a like I feel bad. I totally blame. Yeah, him. no, that that's <laughs> a sexual assault because he was drugged. Yeah, and specifically, he tried to be like, "What's in the tea?" And they're like, "No, no, we're." And they're like, "Just good time feelings, bro." And he was like, "Obviously, <laughs> no, he, obviously, nothing of concern has happened my entire four days here. I'm sure it's gonna be great." Yeah, the amount of peer pressure that these people put on themselves. Couldn't you just say? Mmm, yummy. And then do that weird cartoon thing where you, like, drink out of the glass, but it's dripping down your face. Yeah, or, like, you know when you try to get kids to eat baby food and, like, they won't eat it. So you yummy. You, you pretend to take the bite, like, hey, kids, this cream chicken, delicious. And then you trick them into eating it and they realize you're a liar. Like. Yeah, I'm like, you don't have to drink that, man. Um, But, so, after we see the pubic hair mural. Um, we go to the barn where all the children under 18 sleep, including all of our visitors. And Pele talks about the different stages of life, which is some great foreshadowing for the Astupa. Or, yeah, the Astupa. Um, where he gives the, and some people keep bringing up the symbolism of the number nine. Um, these are all multiples of nine. One to 18, you're a child. 18 to 36, you go on your pilgrimage. 36 to 54, you are working. And then 54 to 72, you're a mentor. And someone, as a pregnant question, asks, what happens after 72? And we didn't have to wait very long <laughs> to figure that out. So Check off his question. So the next day, they start alluding, you know, as we're going to bed, they're alluding to this this thing that's happening the next day. I heard it's creepy, all this stuff. And they go to like a, like a picnic outside. And this big table is shaped like a rune. A rune like a nordic rune a elder futhark or lesser futhark rune um which i believe means i wrote it down and then i lost it because i'm bad at notes um i believe it means transition but may also mean age um so you have these two older people that kind of sit at the head of the table and nobody does anything until they do something, which I thought was really cool. They He pans back and you see like one of them pick up their utensils and then it kind of progresses as a wave down their side of the, their side of the table. Um, I like that too. Is this the scene where they're eating the weird meat pies and Christian's drink is the wrong color? <laughs> um, I don't remember if it's this one or the feast after. I kind of no, it's after this because I remember that's right when they eat the meat pies. Danny was involved in cooking it, so that's after this, right? And Danny says the oh, because it's after Simon disappears because she tells Christian that she thinks he'd do the same to her. That's right. 
I love that scene also. It's like the first time she ever stood up for herself. I know. I have some I was proud. great ideas about Danny. So this is the first time we see when they take the shot of the drink and they all do that, the synchronized breathing. Yeah. So the synchronizing of things is brilliant and they use it a lot. Um, and it, when in retrospect, you're going to juxtapose this to other scenes in the movie when things weren't mimicked and it's mind boggling. Um, so after they eat, they take the shot of some cool stuff. It, I don't know if it's trippy liquid or alcohol. It could be mushroom tea. I'm not sure. Um, I presume it's alcohol. Yeah, it, it's probably something likened to like that, like anise liqueur that's really popular in that area. And gross. Uh, yeah. No, it's a bad hangover, man. <laughs> so. Like, you know what? One thing, though. One huh. thing in this scene and directly before it. The only one, and it irritated me because purportedly these are all anthropology students. Right. But Danny is the only person to actually try to assimilate into this culture while she's there. It falls apart after the uh, suicide ritual. Mm -hmm. But prior to that and directly after when she recovers a little bit, she's the only person who actually tries to be respectful back instead of being this separate implied superiority thing over the group that they're staying with. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when she greets... Pelle's sister when they first get there she thinks her in Swedish yes when yeah when she's walking she's always trying to participate she's respectful she listens she answers people kindly she doesn't make any aggressive or unnecessary judgments out loud she's the only one pretty much everyone else either is completely restrained and to themselves and just observing like Josh where he's an observer but not a participant or directly in conflict with the community, like stupid Mark. <sighs> I know, I <laughs> no, hate him too. But no, but that's true. Like, she, she's the only one that makes an effort to actually engage in an understanding fashion. Um, until the stupa, which... <laughs> well. Um, so, the two old people dressed in blue from the table are, like, carried away on these weird chair, chariot things, and... Everybody's congregating at the bottom of a cliff face, which should tell you something is going to happen. Uh, and if that didn't, the gigantic fucking mallet <laughs> should have said something to you at that point. And I like how in this specific scene, you have all of the all of the actual cultists, all the Harga are in white and all of the non-Harga are not in white. And I think even at this point, Pele has put on his tunic. He's not in like gray or black. He's in white. And, yeah, he was. And they do a ritual where they cut their hands. There's this runic tablet. The runes on it all have meaning. Like the X's are um, like symbolic of um, an offering. And there's a few backwards and upside down ones that are like um, the end of journey and the beginning of a cycle, um, which is really interesting. And then um, the woman jumps off the cliff. And everyone's kind of quiet, and she just kind of dies. She dies quickly because her... It's fairly peaceful, even though it was a gruesome scene. And I love how it's super gruesome, and it's bright. And Ari Oster loves And silent. I don't know why Ari Oster really likes showing uh, traumatic head injuries. (laughs) He loves it, and it... (laughs) I hate it. 
Um, so it's, it's effective though because it's not been gory the whole movie. No, and it, this time you have to stare at it while you go through Danny's like. I can't think of the term, but her shock symptoms, basically. Like oh, yeah. How everything is quiet but kind of ringing, but you can hear the Simon yelling in the background. Yeah. Yo, I, and I love that. And I love how you see her grab for Christian before the woman actually jumps because Danny realizes mm-hmm. what's happening. And, um, yeah, you as the viewer, you are inside Danny's head because you are hearing what Danny hears. And I, it's... Her head explodes on a rock. Um, but it, <laughs> Your voice got so sad. But it's not, it's not, <laughs> like, it's not, it's not an Eli Roth head explosion. It is a tasteful brain gore, if that could be a description. Um, Except the eyeballs. You can see some eyeballs and teeth, which I did not appreciate. Yeah, no, but that, you know, so... <sighs> Then the old then the old man jumps because one suicide is not enough, and he just um, goes foot first, and his his arm his leg like pops off, and this yeah, is yeah that was sad. This is where we see the second though instance of mimicked behavior. So he's obviously alive and in pain, and he's moaning, and we then see all of the harga mimic his pain and moaning. They are as a group feeling his transition to death which do you think they really are is it like some weird biological psychic bond or something or is it just mimicked behavior because of an excessive empathy i think that well i mean it's been proven that for some people um group activities like that when working through trauma can be very helpful um especially when it's like I feel insecure. I feel unsupported. I feel, you know, alone. Having a collected trauma builds a strong bond. That's why, you know, a lot of things can happen with people that go through similar or the same experience, come out of it with very strong bonds, even if they didn't know each other beforehand, because they lived through a shared trauma. So I would posit, I would theorize that this might be something that the Harga does especially like in the case of the old man he's conscious he is aware he Mm -hmm. is alive his brain is working and the mimicry of his community to him the sharing of his pain and the vocalization of that is probably a huge comfort for him knowing that in 30 seconds that giant mallet is used to beat him repeatedly over the head well, and that it's like almost over for him. Yeah. And so while they can't comfort him in terms of fixing his leg or making the pain go away, the comfort comes from my community is feeling this with me in the best way they can. And it's not the first time or the last time we see something like this occur to create a shared experience, which I think is which I- super powerful. Yes. And that's what makes it more of like a love story than a horror because like, in a way, I feel like even though there's a lot of murder, it's almost you feel envious of the community a little bit because no one there is alone, you know, like in any instance or circumstance. Right. And Pele even brings that up later on in the film when talking to Danny. And he like, 
he tells her he literally it's the scene after this one where Danny's just mm-hmm. like what the fuck did you just do like why am I here and he specifically tells her my parents died in a fire hmm I wonder what fire and then he mm-hmm. says um he says that everything he's doing for Danny is to make her feel at home with the Harga which I find interesting and held by the community and he I, he talks about he was never alone yes he said, I always felt held by a family, a real family that everyone deserves, that you deserve. And then in response, in, in regards to Christian says, does he feel like home to you? Which broke my heart. I was like, oh, you murdering bastard. Right. But then I was also like, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. Like, Also, did you notice, so when Danny is crying, traumatized after that scene, mm-hmm. and at first, she's with Christian, and he tells she just says she needs to be away from there for a second. And he runs after his friends. He goes, "Okay, we'll take some time by yourself." That's right before Paley finds her crying and packing, getting ready to leave in their communal barn thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "You're a bastard, man!" No, because Christian's terrible. This is also we've already you know we didn't bring it up, but there was an instance where they're all sitting in the grass, and Maya runs by Christian and kind of flirts at him, like kicks him. And he makes eyes at her in front of Danny, and Danny sees it. So, like, he doesn't mm-hmm. hide that he looks at other women. He doesn't, like, he says shit in front of her that you wouldn't say about or near your significant other if you gave a shit about their feelings ever. Um, he does it a lot. Um, I'm trying to think of anything specific he said. There's a lot of tone and a lot of just unnecessary weird stuff from him. But I can't, I don't think he's ever overtly, I can't think of anything Okay, so I don't think that he's overtly dismissive or crappy towards Danny. I think every single thing is sort of weird and backhand and passive aggressive. Honestly, he's so she can't even bring it up. He's super spineless, like that, and that's kind of the crux of it. Because this is a, this is this might be around the time where he pulls Josh aside and tells Josh, "Oh yeah, I'm doing my thesis on the exact thing you're doing your thesis on." Uh, and dismissively, he acts like he's doing Josh a favor almost. Right. Well, because, okay, here's, uh, people might get mad at me. He's a white man. And Josh is a black guy. And Christian can't even realize, like, what he's doing is, like, super wrong. Like, see, his, I'll be blunt. I, I didn't see anything racial in it. I thought that Christian's just self-absorbed and shitty and he knew what he was doing was wrong. So he was trying to come at him immediately with that weird condescending, just letting you know is a good friend. So that he trying to gaslight Josh like he gaslighted Stanley and he failed because Josh doesn't care if he has Christian's approval. No, because Josh isn't as invested in Christian as Chris, as as Danny is. And mm-hmm. and so that, you know, um it just he he's he's spineless. He's he's thinking that he can tell Josh, "Oh, I'm changing, I'm going to do my thesis on the thing you did your thesis on. Do you want to collaborate after you've done all this work?" Like, do you want to share all the hard work you did with me, your weird silent partner who's just going to take yeah. credit during the and PowerPoint I'm just going to sneak in in the last third of the game and I'm going to look real good and you're going to look like a nerd. You think it was racial on purpose, though, that, like, part of it was cultural entitlement or something? Um, I think that, honestly, I think that given the time frame that the movie's release was, um, I would assume that the characters were probably a little more aware of um, racial 
discrepancy, like racial unfairness academically. It's a thing that happens. Oh, yeah. And so I could definitely see a situation where even if Josh was or Christian wasn't overtly like, I'm going to steal Josh's shit, he would obviously be cognizant of the idea of that, like his thesis may be graded differently because he is a white kid named Christian. Oh, that's sad. Like that's just, and I, I would just, I would just make the assumption, considering they're graduate students of cultural anthropology, that they are probably aware that that is a thing that exists. Yeah, I and I, I guess that's my thing. They're all so horrified, and I understand being surprised by the shock of it. But as an anthropology student, like you didn't Google anything about the region, right? I'm not saying these are common practices in modern day Sweden, but. At least Josh knew what some of these words meant, so he had some kind of background. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, we... They go to bed. Danny has a nightmare. She wakes up to seeing Maya put, like... Or no, Josh wakes up to seeing Maya... Josh sees it. Maya putting something weird under Christian's bed. It ends up being a love rune. Um, And later on that day, he starts seeing the um, their special book. That Siv was reading from at the Astupa, and it's written by the Oracle, which is the Oracle is a purposely inbred human being, uh, purposely inbred to make that book, um, and to be like deformed and uh, cognizant yeah. and unaware. So, this is where we find out that Simon's gone. Um, Connie's looking for him. They freaked out the day before, and Simon's disappeared. Um, multiple people are telling her that Simon took a truck to the train station and would send a car back for her, which she thinks is bullshit. And it kind of goes, you know, kind of back and forth. You know, we're kind of seeing everybody do their own thing. Um, Mark ends up like there's a girl that he's been making eyes at the whole time. He disappears trying to find her. And Danny's like talking to somebody and they no one ever mentions it, but you very, very clearly hear a woman screaming in the background. I didn't hear it here, but I heard it in another place. Yeah. Yeah. It's after Simon goes missing while, mm-hmm. while, well, it happens before Simon. Oh no, you're right. No. It's Simon. I was thinking of Mark. Mark hears it. Yeah. And actually, so this is Ari Oster confirmed. This is where Connie dies and they actually cut this to, I guess there were too many gory deaths, and so they actually had to cut the whole scene, and then they cut a subsequent oh. scene um, that kind of foreshadowed it. Um, so we have to pause. We have two minutes. We are. So we're going to pause. That's the end of episode one. Uh, we're going to come back episode two, and I'm probably going to release them the same day because I do things like that. So um, come back next time. Bye. <laughs>